This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. With me today is Georgetown Professor Judy Fader to discuss recent developments and long-term care policy. Professor Fader, welcome back to the program. Pleasure to be with you, David. Listeners may recall I interviewed Professor Fader in September 2013 regarding the Commission on Long-Term Care's report authorized under the 2013 American Taxpayer Relief Act. Professor Fader's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, according to the SCAN Foundation, the Commonwealth Fund, and the National Center on Aging, 70% of Americans that reach age 65, and that will total 60 million by 2030, will need some form of long-term care for an average of three years, 12% for more than five years. While long-term care is typically associated with aging, approximately 40% of those in need of long-term care are under the age of 65. Among other realities, long-term care is largely unaffordable, costing upwards of six years' worth of an average earner's income, or 400% of an average senior's annual income. Between six and seven million, or less than 10% of middle-age, middle-income rather, population age 45 or older, own a commercial long-term care insurance policy. Among those that can afford long-term care, tens of thousands will die from poor care, namely avoidable infections and the inappropriate or overuse of antipsychotics. Family caregivers are 30% of the adult population, approximately 65 million, whom are moreover women, suffer substantial emotional, financial, and physical hardship in caring for an ill or disabled relative. Nevertheless, the U.S., unlike most comparative countries, has no long-term care policy. Long-term care coverage for a vast majority of Americans in need can only be obtained by purposely pursuing a legally complicated asset depletion or self-impoverishment process to qualify for long-term coverage under the Medicaid program. The ACA's Class Act that would have created a voluntary public long-term care insurance option for employees was determined in 2011 to be actuarially unworkable and under the American Taxpayer Relief Act mentioned above, was repealed. The American Taxpayer Relief Act Commission on Long-Term Care produced a report in 2013 that contained service delivery and workforce recommendations, but did not reach agreement regarding financing. With me again to discuss long-term care policy is Georgetown's Judy Fader. So with that as background, Judy, let me begin by asking, why did the 15 members of the 13 Commission differ on financing? The commission, David, was a um, something of an afterthought, poorly prepared, um, or poorly set up by the authorizing legislation, and lacking in backing in terms of congressional support or, um, or administration support to move forward. Uh, and it was treated, I think, or it, it behaved as the um, kind of uh, afterthought it was. The um, members were, it was a bipartisan commission, and the charge was to develop a proposal to finance long-term care. But the 
um, the leadership um, and the Republicans on the proposal were uh, really looking for, I'd say, lowest common denominator of agreement on anything. Uh, and there were five Democrats on the on the commission who who were not prepared, didn't didn't want to go there, really wanted to address the charge, didn't necessarily agree with what others uh, were coming to agreement on, and so it really. I thought it was pretty useless. Okay. Thank you for that. So I ask about financing, obviously, because that's really the crux or has been the frustration here in getting a policy. Let's go to the details of your 2018 paper that you co-authored. This was partially funded by HHS. It lays out in detail a long-term care policy. And let's start with who's eligible under this proposal and uh, what and how benefits are triggered. The eligibility for public benefits on this, uh, in this proposal is constrained in two, or defined in two ways. Uh, the, the first definition, what we wrote about was and what we developed was a, a proposal that would operate very much like Social Security so that you would... Uh, have to have worked a certain some number of quarters and paid in along with some additional financing, um, and the so that would be a first criterion for eligibility. But then the trigger for the benefit would be based on your impairment level, um, which we tie to what we refer to as the HIPAA level requirements. The um, the the level of impairment uh, to or or more impairments in activities of daily living um, or some level of cognitive impairment. Those are the requirements for tax-preferred private long-term care insurance that were in the law. That was called HIPAA. Um, And so that's the, the, the level of impairment you would have to demonstrate. And we had an addition, additional condition for eligibility, which is really the innovative aspect of the proposal. We created a, uh, a waiting period, um, a period between when you experience that level of impairment and when you would receive benefits. And the length of that, impair- of that waiting period was uh, varied with income, so that if you were uh, had low in- relatively low income, you would have a shorter period. And if you had a high income, you would have a longer period. The rationale for that design was to find a um, a to define a public benefit that would not eliminate individuals' responsibility for preparing, as it's often said, preparing themselves for long-term care needs. The now, when people say people ought to prepare for themselves, but we have no viable insurance mechanism to prepare, it's nonsense um, because people can't save and shouldn't save that kind of money. But with an insurance, a public insurance plan that has a waiting period that is based on income, it would give people some idea of the gap that they would be expected to fill with either their own resources or with private insurance coverage. And private long-term care insurance, which has failed as an industry, has, is not willing, has not demonstrated a willingness 
to take on truly catastrophic benefits, the tail end of need. That's what the public plan was doing. But it is not implausible that if the public program were there at the back end, that private insurers would come in to offer a, a meaningful product um, at the front and that that product would be more desirable, more understandable once a public benefit also existed. So the idea was to create a public benefit and to design that benefit in a way that would also stimulate a viable private market. Um, in addition, if people wanted to fill that gap without private insurance, we made the waiting period based on time, not expenditures, so that family care is encouraged and people who prefer to get service that way or are lacking in income can do what most people do now, which is rely on family members for care. Okay, thank you. That's helpful. Just to be clear, as a related aside on eligibility, you've noted numerous times in your writings that when we talk about long-term care, we, we shouldn't assume, or it's false to assume, long-term care is only needed for people who are, say, aged or are uh, 65 or older um, in receiving otherwise Medicare uh, benefits. A good percent, I think per your writing, about 40% of people who need a long-term care are under 65 and relative to this policy proposal, those individuals would not necessarily be considered or this plan would not necessarily work for them. Is that correct? It, it would work for them to a, a significant extent. If, it, we, if, if like Social Security, the, the issue is that you have to pay, you, that what we wrote was based on being uh, paying in for a certain number of quarters and also correct. being able to buy the other insurance to fill in if that's right. what you choose to do. Obviously, if you get an, a disability at a, at a quite a young age, this is not this will not work for you. And our and in fact, we firmly believe that we and and wrote in this plan that we continue to need a strong and a stronger than current Medicaid program for the lowest income population, um, as well as for it would in, if if you enacted just what we wrote, you'd also um, you'd need it for. Um, for younger people as well. But it is possible to adjust the quarters of, of um, working, of contribute, of the work quarters uh, based on if, if a disability comes during working years to adjust them downward if a worker becomes disabled. That is what currently happens with Social Security. So it, it's not that it doesn't work for uh, people who become disabled at earlier ages, it is tied to working. Um, so younger than that, yes. But beyond that, the the mechanism could certainly apply to a broader population. Okay, thank you. That's helpful. Let's go to uh, the rub here again, which is how is this under your proposal? How is it paid for or financed? Well, we were financing it with a, um, a surtax on the... Um, on the uh, on the Medicare tax, really looking at the um, taxes on um, higher income people, which we um, the add-ons to the payroll tax and and the taxing of unearned income, which began with the ACA, and found that a, a, a relatively modest increase in that tax would be enough to finance it. Um, but I also I would like to alert you to the fact that when we modeled. Um, the, um, particularly when Melissa Favreau at the Urban Institute, my colleague there, 
estimated the impact of this proposal. If you really uh, followed our designs and relied on people paying in for 10 years, starting from 40 quarters, starting from when the bill was enacted, the, um, I, I'd be long gone by the time this was going into effect. Um, I'm exaggerating a little, um, but because um, I'm only 73. But essentially, you would miss a, a lot of the baby boom generation would have stopped working and, before they could earn the quarters. Um, and so we concluded, based on the analysis we did of our proposed design, um, we concluded that one would need financing from general revenues, that you couldn't start a program like this with simply a contributory arrangement, if you were mm -hmm. to buy, if you if you relied on the a pre-funding based on the contributions paid in while you're working. Okay, thank you. And just to be clear, the benefit is paid out as proposed as a per day cash payment. Is that correct? That is correct. And the thinking there was, if, if people remember the Class Act, the benefit was designed to be far more generous than the Class Act, which was in the Affordable Care Act, but was then repealed. Um, so it is a, a benefit of, a, of we, we established it, if you were doing it now, if I recall, $120 a day. Um, and it would, but it would be lifelong, if that's, if, as long as your disability lasted. So and, wouldn't, there wouldn't be a, a capped amount, total cap? It would be a fixed amount, but the amount would rise with the cost of home care. It's about the average benefit that is being paid out under current long-term care insurance policies for care received at home. So it's mm -hmm. it set, it, it, and it, although it could be applied to nursing home care, it is really intended, focused on care at home. Okay, which obviously people prefer. Exactly. There is an opt-out uh, provision to this proposal? Um, is there an opt-out? Well, yeah. not if, no, I think, my recollection, we're imposing the tax. No, there is not. Okay, okay. Um, and it's like, it's essentially like participating in Social Security or current Medicare. Okay, FICA. Okay. Mm -hmm. But the tax, but the tax is on the, on the higher income, not all through the, all up and down the wage scale. Okay. There would be some additional funding would come from, from Medicaid savings. So that would be plowed into funding this how would that work yeah that i that certainly could be the case um and i believe we talk about that that there would be medicaid savings um but i would tell you that regardless of what i wrote in the paper that just speaking for myself we need a stronger medicaid so whether you're it's not i th i think one can't assume that medicaid would stay as it is there ought to be to really take care of everyone who needs long-term care and build an effective system, we need a stronger Medicaid. So my own view would be, well, I'm glad there's some state relief in that, um, but we, I, my preference would be to put more federal money into Medicaid as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Speaking of Medicaid, you do try to guesstimate or calculate uh, benefits or savings associated with this proposal. Mm -hmm. Could you just could you describe those? Um, I, David, I apologize if you if you really need me to. I'd have to. I can describe them in general, but not amounts. You want me to do just do it? Yeah, just in general. Yes, sure. just in general would be sure. Fine. So Medicaid, as as I believe your audience knows, Medicaid is our 
uh, essentially our, our only safety net for long-term care. It is our, our last resort financing. And as a result, it's Medicaid that deals with the longest days, people who exhaust their resources or never had any to begin with. But the exhausters, who, who by virtue of, of having uh, impairments that last over several years, um, use up whatever resources they had to take care of themselves. Uh, and so when if you design a proposal or a, a, you implement a plan that is um, ultra, that is actually picking up those long stays, those long, they're not stays because they're at home, those long episodes, um, then there is significant Medicaid relief. Okay, you do you do note also generally that there can be enhanced long-term uh, services and support spending because, of course, this program would afford such and that there would be reduced, particularly substantially reduced, per the policy proposal of out-of-pocket spending and that if this policy was enacted, there could be some, although at least in theory there could be some savings to the Medicaid program, although the suggested policy is that those would be plowed back in uh, in some ways to care. Well, they, so, they uh, one would hope, I'm, I, I, we wrote the paper a few years ago, and what I'm saying is that, that having um, thought more about the gaps in the system, I, I would like to see um, savings plugged back in, but I am um, concerned, and it, the concern is heightened by the COVID experience, I'm really concerned about states' willingness to continue to support long-term care, even even if we give them some relief. So I would be an advocate for more federal resources in Medicaid as well. Right. Just as an aside, there is increasing talk about the federal government taking over the funding, 100% of the Medicaid uh, program funding, but that's a topic for a whole other conversation. Let's go <laughs> to the politics. Let's go to the politics here. Soon after this report was out, um, the chair, current chair of the uh, House DNC Committee, Frank Pallone, I know you participated in a panel session. He put out a discussion draft two years ago. It wasn't legislative language. There's been other noise, I would say, probably more than signal in the House. For example, Richard Neal, uh, Jayapal, uh, has uh, mentioned in her Medicare for All, a long-term care policy. And uh, there are other members, Sousa as, uh, as well, um, but let's go to what's, what's been your impression or reaction to conversations you've had uh, with the Congress on trying to go back to this issue? Well, it, I, I was pleased to work with uh, Congressman Pallone and his staff um, on turning our proposal into initial legislative language. And they, they built, they didn't really take the proposal as is, they built on it. Um, and expanded eligibility to current people currently in need, um, and make other changes. They, I think, if I remember correctly, dropped the waiting period. Excuse me, dropped the the did, didn't tie the waiting period to income. They did a flat two year waiting period. I preferred our option, but um, but that's okay. They moved in that direction. So that bill, which or that language, which they given other pressures on on that committee, um, has not um, been formally introduced. And nevertheless, that bill remains, I believe, a priority for 
Cologne when when we get the time to turn to it. And so there's interest there, but let's just say it's not a front burner. Um, I then turning to others other proposals, uh, the the move to uh, the push to move beyond our existing multi-payer in health insurance system to a single-payer system um, went beyond what we think of as, as standard in health insurance to include insurance for long-term care. That was true, um, as, it, as you said, in, in Sanders' bill and Jayapal's bill and um, in uh, Schakowsky deloro that that one also had uh, long-term care provisions. Uh, those provisions are, tend to be quite vague, um, and the benefits, the, the eligible population either not very well defined or defined quite broadly along with the benefits. So what I believe them to be is reflective of aspirations. The most active community that is pushing those, that legislation is the, uh, or the, the groups who support represent uh, younger people with disabilities. I have not seen nearly the energy in the among advocates for aging that I've seen among the populations for younger people with disabilities. So there it, it is that is I think important to note that's a real change um, it, to have it included in broader health insurance discussion but we, it, it, we got a way to go to build public support for what if it is meaningful will be an expensive benefit. Yes, let me let me ask why less interest or energy uh, as it relates to um, organizations advocating on behalf of seniors. If you, you ask a question to which I do not have an answer, um, I I I think it um, there is a, has is historically a tendency for uh, those organizations AARP being the biggest to advocate kind of um, within rather than to push the envelope. Um, and I, it just simply has not been a priority for them. I, I've heard that there's, a, there, that, those, that there's potential that that's shifting. Their priority has been to focus on family caregivers, and I would say that there's no better support for family caregivers than a public benefit so that they can have access to affordable assistance that alleviates um, but does not eliminate some of the of the tasks that they are uh, killing themselves to perform, family members. Um, but And I, I also think that um, energizing caregivers is a, a potent, has potential to boost a movement for um, more direct public action. But unfortunately, it also builds in or it retains this notion that it's the job of families to care for people who have needs. And not only does, does not everybody have family, but even families are being asked to do too much and to make sacrifices that they should not have to make. Yes, thank you. Let's go to um, your sense of the discussion, this discussion uh, during this presidential campaign obviously more over on, on the left. Uh, the Biden campaign came out last week with 10 pages relative to caregiving and the education workforce. We don't need to get into the specifics or details. I'm really interested, speaking of vague, uh, a lot of language here, very hard to nail down the specifics thereof, but what's your general sense of 
the Biden campaign's efforts so far, interest so far here? What you see in the pro- in the proposal, David, I'd say, are two things that are of considerable importance. One is the focus on um, the, the language is eliminating the waiting waiting list for home and community based care. Mm-hmm. So we, as we discussed, that Medicaid is the last resort um, for long term care financing. But uh, as you well know, uh, the that Medicaid is designed in a way that makes the uh, requires states to offer nursing homes, but does not require them to offer home and community-based care. Uh, now, that, that doesn't mean necessarily the states have gone berserk on nursing homes. They control use there, too, although they, they may pay more than, they, than would be desirable, given the power of the nursing home industry. Um, but it does mean that they have skimped on home and community-based care. And most states that provide home and community-based care do so through uh, what we call waivers, which enable them to cap enrollment and create waiting lists. You, waiting lists. you can't do that for an, a standard Medicaid benefit. Medicaid is an entitlement, but not in the case of home and community-based care. And what, what, and, and it, this is usually referred to as the institutional bias. Um, and there is strong advocacy, particularly again, in the uh, community representing the devel- developmentally disabled population, to um, to make to make home and community-based care a mandatory benefit in Medicaid. Uh, so what you see is Biden's commitment to getting rid of the institutional bias. That's the language that is used politically. Um, you that, so that's one very important feature, and would be if if, um, if well implemented, would be a substantial strengthening of the Medicaid program. The second piece that you see is attention to the um, the fact that the direct care workers are underpaid. Uh, direct care mm-hmm. workers are getting hard hit in this uh, in this virus. Uh, we don't have enough of them, and we treat them terribly. Uh, and so there's a commitment in the um, in in what Biden in the the remarks that he made to moving toward uh, better wages for this population, and that and so developing the long-term care workforce is a, is another key commitment of his, and that 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 uh, they are not only disproportionately low income, they are disproportionately people of color who are themselves dependent on public benefits. So I would say that those are the two aspects to look for, getting more, get putting home and community-based services on an equal footing with other Medicaid services and therefore making it live up to the entitlement, not create a waiting list, and two, make sure we're properly paying the people we count on to serve us. Thank you for that. I'll just note on the details his proposal, which also includes uh, child care, related child care benefits, and that is... Uh, this proposal in sum is estimated at $775 billion over 10 years. And concerning uh, home and community-based services, point well taken since the uh, proposal notes that there are 800,000 people on the wait list in those states that have such a benefit under the Medicaid program. So it is a substantial problem um, for right. even and those states not, that have the, the waiver. waiting lists are, uh, are used as an indicator, but we know that um, waiting lists are just an indicator. People go on them, go off them. With it, how meaningful they are is a, is an open question. Although it certainly reflects there are many more people wanting service 
that are getting it, but I think the number who want it are larger than you see on a waiting list because people don't apply if they're, if they're not going to get benefits. Right, yes, the chilling effect, yes, absolutely, great point. There is one other mystery aspect to this proposal, and, it, and I'll ask you just if you have any idea what this is, but it states that uh, if elected, the administration will establish a long-term services and supports innovation fund. Do you have any idea what that, uh, what that would amount to? Um, I, 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 I have seen no more than is in that proposal, and I believe what it signals is a commitment on the part of, uh, of a, what would be a President Biden to enhance service provision more broadly in this area, and I'd like to think of it as signaling his interest in uh, expanding legislation or in, in, in developing legislation like that we've talked about. Okay, Judy, we're at our time, so I appreciate this whirlwind overview of a complicated subject. Um, so very helpful. Let's see where we go uh, in the next, uh, say, 10 to 12 months, and maybe we can revisit this uh, relative to progress made. My pleasure, David. I so appreciate your interest, and um, I'm, I'm very hopeful that in, in coming months we'll have an opportunity to talk about moving forward in this really necessary area of service that we have ignored for so long. Thank you again. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.